we are in the midst of a study through the book of Isaiah. And it is our intent to work through this text of Scripture, this book of the Bible, just section by section to see what God has for us. That is our sort of foundational kind of approach to the Word of God around here. We want to just take the Word that God chose to inspire, whatever that may be, and wrestle with it, understand it, consider its implications, and go out and let the whole counsel of the Word of God guide and direct us. So we are in the midst of a section of Scripture that most people wouldn't choose to be a sermon text. It's a series of ten oracles of judgment. This is a section that begins in Isaiah chapter 13 and runs through Isaiah chapter 23. And we have seen God's oracle concerning Babylon, the ancient empire of Babylon in Isaiah 13. We saw the oracle concerning Philistia, the Philistines, in chapter 14. And we saw the oracle concerning Moab, the ancient Moabites, in chapters 15 and 16. So this is the fourth of these oracles that God has spoken through His prophet. And we are called by God to give our attention to this text, this Lord's Day. This fourth oracle addresses a particular nation, the the working of God in a particular nation. However, the nation that is addressed immediately becomes not the only focus of attention. In fact, as the context unfolds, we will see that there are implications beyond that one nation, far beyond. And so rather than pointing that out to you ahead of time and telling you where we're going, I'd like for us to just discover it together as we work through this text and then to let the applications arise from that discovery. So let's just give our attention then to the text. And rather than reading it all together at the beginning, we'll just work our way through and discover as we go along. All right. So Isaiah 17 is the Word of God for us today. Let us give ourselves to it. Isaiah 17 and verse 1 begins this way. The oracle concerning what? Damascus. Now you probably know that Damascus is today the capital of a country. It's the same country of which it was a capital in the day of Isaiah. And that was the country of Syria, yes. Otherwise called Aram also in the scripture, A-R-A-M. So Syria or Damascus. Now, verse 17, Behold, the Lord says, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. So once again, God's oracle concerning this people is an oracle of judgment. And verse 2, now let's take a look at this verse. The cities of Aroer are deserted. They will be for flocks which lie down and none will make them afraid. In other words, this is going to be a place of just where people uh, graze their animals, but but it's going to be bereft of people because of the judgment that God will bring upon this place. Now, what is interesting is that there is no mention of this place, Aroer, in Syria. It's like, where is this? And in fact, this term, this name, is mentioned only three times in the Bible. And when you look at those three, you can just Google it or look it up in a concordance if you want, but when you look at those three, it seems that this city, Aroer, the cities that surround it, are actually over on the east side of the Jordan River, up in the area that was given to Reuben or Gad for their possession, And now in Isaiah's day, this city and this group of cities is in the area that belongs to the northern kingdom of Israel. So we've moved from talking about Damascus up in Syria to talking about these cities over in the northern kingdom. 
And, and the rest of the context seems to confirm that. Verse 3, let's continue to go through here. Verse 3, the fortress will disappear. God's going to bring His judgment. They're going to lose their fortifications from where? Fortress will disappear from Ephraim. Now that's a clear reference to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom from Damascus or Syria. In fact, God seems to be implying through this oracle that the fates of Syria up in the north, far north, and Israel, the northern kingdom, are linked. Verse 3, middle of the verse, continuing on now in verse 3, the remnant of Syria will be what? It'll be like the glory of the children of Israel. So whatever, whatever the fate of Syria, it's going to be linked to the fate of Israel. The, fate, uh, the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. And what will happen to her glory? To Israel's glory, well, the next verse tells us, verse 4, and in that day, the glory of Jacob will be what? Brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. In other words, Israel as a nation will, will be humbled and will be weakened like an old man. And now verses 5 and 6 continue on this theme of God's judgment using an agricultural metaphor. Verse 5, And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, and as when one gleans the ears in the valley, uh, the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Gleanings will be left in it. That is in these two uh, nations. Gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. It is like after the owner of a field, God says, it, it, what will the, the, my judgment on these people will be like after the owner of the field sends out his reapers into his harvest field to gather all of the harvest, and all that's left is the little corners of the harvest field that they've left for the poor people to come and glean just a few heads of grain. My judgment is just going to sweep through. God's sickle of judgment, as it were, will sweep through these nations whose fates are now linked. It will sweep through and leave just a few people left. It'll be like God says, someone who takes a stick out to his fruit tree or out to his, his olive tree and beats that, the branches, the high branches with the stick to knock down the fruit. And maybe you've done that if you've been out um, gathering fruit and, and, and knocking down the things and, and you reach as high as you can and there's only just a few little pieces of fruit left on the highest branches out there. That's all that's left. Everything else, the trees are all denuded of fruit. The Lord says, this is the way I'm going to bring my judgment to bear upon these nations. God would judge Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel and leave just a few survivors left. And of course, the background to this is what we've already seen in this book. You remember that? Remember, remember this? Yeah? Back in chapter 7... And 8 of Isaiah, we saw it. You can read about it in historical books as well. But in Isaiah 7 and 8, we saw that Isaiah came to King Ahaz and he warned him not to be afraid of this coalition, this worldly alliance between Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and Syria. Remember that they had joined together in a kind of Packed to stand up against the real world power in their day, which was the great eastern empire of Assyria. And the Assyrians were on the move, and Syria and Israel said, we've got to stand together, and let's get Judah on our side, and Ahaz. Judah resisted, 
their pact, and so they threatened to come down and to stage a coup and to depose the Davidic king and to set up their own man who would lead Judah to join with them. And so this is really the background of how these two nations, Israel and Syria, came to be linked up now. They entered into kind of an anti-Assyrian pact together in connection with the other great world power, Egypt, and other nations around them. So this was the situation in which the people of God, this remnant of, of God's people down there in Judah, found themselves. And Syria and, and Israel, and certainly the Assyrians and the Egyptians were all idolaters. But the people of Israel were supposed to worship the one true God. But here they were, joining together in an unequal alliance with idolatrous peoples, the Syrians and the Egyptians, joining together with them in the face of um, great distress. And I'm sure they said to themselves, listen, we know this... We shouldn't be linked up with these idolatrous nations, but you don't understand. This is, a, this is a difficult time. This is the only way to save ourselves. And what happens was, what happens to a lot of us, right? They began to be more pragmatic than really biblical and really trusting in their God. And that really is kind of what's at the heart of what's going on here is this tendency that, that even God's people have sometimes to fall back into a kind of pragmatic way of thinking and to make worldly alliances when it seems like there's no other way. And of course, all through the Scriptures, there are warnings to us about becoming too closely aligned with the world. Right, friends? The Bible warns us over and over again about worldly alliances and the way that they tend to steal our hearts away from the true and living God. The Israelites in the Old Testament were commanded not to intermarry with the unbelieving peoples around them, for they would surely turn their hearts to idols. Paul in the New Testament quoted the Scripture, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But, you know, when Christians are faced with what they view as a great difficulty, when they see in their own mind's eye uh, as being no other way, the temptation is to choose pragmatically rather than trust in their Lord. And so we have seen churches join and link forces with liberals, non-Bible-believing people for the sake of holding on to denominational institutions and investments. And for the sake of that, they're willing to, to compromise to enter into a worldly alliance, or to link up with false churches for the, for the cause of so-called evangelism, kind of this, even, uh, the, the, this ecumenical movement to just join forces with anybody who names the name of Christ as long as you know, we have a desire to reach the world somehow, whatever that means to them. Or the young person that starts dating a non-believer because they're afraid that they will never find a committed Christian in their little world who would be interested in them. When, when the situation around Christian people seems, seems like it, it, there's no way for God's good purposes to be worked out from their viewpoint, the temptation is for all of us to just sort of 
look to other places, to look to the world around us for what we should be relying upon God alone for. And sometimes that means that Christians are tempted to make worldly alliances, to put their hope in worldly places. And friend, the Lord admonishes us, listen, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And I and don't touch the unclean thing. Then I will be to you a father. You can trust your heavenly father in those times of distress, in those times when it, all of the world around you seems in turmoil. You can trust the father to take care of you. He will see you through. The Lord is trustworthy. Don't doubt Him now. This is the message that God is trying to get to to Israel and to Judah. Trust in the Lord alone. The whole book of Isaiah, and that's one of the main themes, isn't it? God is looking for a servant. He's cultivating a servant to trust, who will trust in Him alone. That's the message that Isaiah is trying to communicate to these nations and especially to those who claim to be God's people. And this is really what the issue is. It's a matter of trust. They, tr- they would trust Jehovah or they would trust their worldly alliances, their pragmatic strategies, and ultimately even the gods of those other peoples. And because of their failures of faith, God said, I will bring my judgment upon Syria, but not only Syria, but also upon Israel. And so we have this really um, fearful passage that, that was given to those people. And what I want you to notice, though, is God has two intentions uh, in bringing this desolation upon Syria and Israel. There are two intentions of God going on. In the first place, you have the punishment and the destruction of the wicked, but also God's intent is to chasten and purify the remnant of His true people among Israel. His intent is to really bring them even through this great distress, to bring them out to a stronger, better place, to purify His people. And God often chastens His children. And His chastening sometimes feels like He's just given us over to destruction with the world. I, I just, it feels like He's turned His back on His children sometimes. But his intent is actually to purify them. His intent is to wean them away from sin, from any dependencies on anything else other than a dependency upon him alone. That's his intent. His intent is not for their ultimate harm, but for their good, to show them the futility of what they've made idols out of in order to get them to run back to Him with all their hearts. God does that today. He does that in our life. That really, I think, in a way, that's what sanctification is. The process of God's demonstrating to us the futility of our idolatries. And that was God's intent and His purpose for the believing remnant. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. Are you with me? In that day, that is that day when God brings His chastening upon these nations, in that day, man will look to his what? See, this is what, this is the purifying effect that God's, God wants to have in those who are truly His. Man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars to the work of his hands, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the Asherim, these are the false gods and goddesses, or 
the altars of incense to those gods. There will, in that day, be this effect. When God brings His judgment upon Israel and upon Syria, there will be some in there who are really His people, and they will see this was futile to look to these other nations. This was wrong for us to make league to go into league with unbelieving people. We should have trusted in the Lord our God. And they will turn their eyes away from those things, away from those gods in whom they trusted to take care of them. And they will look to, again, their true God. This is, this is really the sanctification process. God showing us the futility of anything that we have lifted up and, and made an idol out of. I remember years ago reading the, a story of James McConkie, who was a businessman, had an ice harvesting business. This was back in the days before you know, electric refrigerators and people had ice boxes. and He would go out on that lake in the winter and they would cut ice, you know, like the movie Frozen, uh, if you've never seen it in real life. Uh, they would cut ice and they would harvest that. And he'd had a couple of really, really bad winters where uh, the ice had been washed away by heavy rains and had been washed out to sea. But McConkie had, had dedicated himself, he believed, to God, his business to God. He said, God, this is, this is yours, at least like all of us. He said, God, in his mind, he said, God, I belong to you. Now, I think it had yet to really reach down into his heart of hearts because a third winter came and the ice thickened up really nicely and it looked like it would be a great year, a wonderful crop. He would make up what he had lost the last two years. And the night before, as he tells it, the night before he was to go out and to begin the harvesting of the ice, Lying in bed, he began to hear the rain on the roof of his house. And the rain got harder and harder and harder and harder. And in time he knew his harvest again would be lost. And he just began to get really bitter in his heart, like, like happens to a lot of us when God starts touching our idols, starts sort of you know, beginning to take them away. And he began to get angry and bitter toward God and just say, God, why? I've given myself to you. I've given my business to you. I've said it's yours. And it was as if those words just came right back to him. Is it mine? Are you really mine? Do you really trust me? And he says that, Finally, there in his bed that night, he just came to a point where he was just crowded toward Christ and said, I have, you've taken it all away. I have nothing but you, and I just want, I just, I know you're going to be enough. You'll take care of your, your servants. You'll take care of your children. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm just, I rest in you. And it was a huge turning point, he says, in his life in His trust, in His sanctification. And in fact, the Lord was gracious, and at midnight, the rain finally stopped, and it turned into a blizzard. And uh, in the morning, went out to a really huge ice harvest. But His testimony always was that, you know, by that time, it didn't matter. It didn't matter anymore. Because what mattered to him now mostly was not the ice, but the God of the ice. That's where he was looking now. And you know, the Lord does that, doesn't he? I mean, you, you people can testify. God has sometimes touched your idols to show you the futility of those things upon which you trusted, those things in which you were taking all your hope. But I want to remind you that his intent for that, his intent in that, for, for those who are, of you who are truly his people, his intent is not for your harm, but for your everlasting good. That you and I may see him more clearly, that we may have eyes for him and him alone. 
these, for these nations, for Israel and for Syria, it would take judgments and exiles and desolations and destruction in order to get them to look to God alone. And so he says in verse number 9, In that day their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel. In other words, I think just like the Canaanite cities were deserted back in the days of the Israelite conquest, they'll be deserted again. And there will be desolation, he says. God would bring judgment on the land, just as He did in the conquest by Israel, but now Israel herself would be judged as well. Why? Because she had become just like the nations around her. She would be the subject of God's judgment, just like they had been. And verses 10 and 11 really focus again in on the reason for God's judgment upon them. Note the words for in verse 10 and the word therefore in the middle of the verse. The reason for God's judgment. Verse 10, for you have what? For you have forgotten the God of your salvation. You have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, again a reference to these foreign allegiances and alliances now in agricultural terms, though you sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will what? The harvest is going to flee away in the day of grief and incurable pain. God identifies the reason for the judgment, and that is that they have forgotten the God of their salvation. They did not remember the Lord who was their refuge. They had forgotten the God who loved them while they were yet sinners and called them out of Egypt to be His sons and daughters. They had forgotten the God who brought them out by such mighty and powerful displays of His sovereignty over the gods of the Egyptians. They had forgotten the God who preserved them for all of those years wandering in the wilderness, who fed them with manna out of heaven and water out of a rock. How could you forget that, right? You would think those stories would resonate with your children for generations to come, and yet they had forgotten this God. They had abandoned Him, turned their back on Him. Those stories had become just that, just stories. This is not the God that we know. They had forgotten the God who had driven out the Canaanites before them. Those who are mightier and stronger and more numerous than they. And by His pure grace. And how quickly we are, we are prone to forget when we are in distress. When we're perplexed by all that's going on around us like Israel was. Tempted to be forgetful when we're faced with trouble. And that really is the time in our lives the times in our lives when our faith is tested, right? Do you remember the God who has done marvelous things for you? Do you remember the God who saved you while you were yet in your sins? Who took pity upon you when no one should have? Do you remember that? Do you remember the God who preserved you through all of these years when you would have gone astray and brought your life into self-destruction, the God who was patiently looking out for you again and again and again and again, the God who pursued you when your heart was wayward and cold. You remember? You remember the God who made 
unusual provision for you in some dramatic way and you knew in that moment that there was a Father in heaven who cared for you? Have you forgotten the God who has faithfully chastened and forgiven you again and again? Have you forgotten the God who has sanctified and delivered you all this time? Friends, look to Him. Remember the goodness and the greatness of your Lord. Remember. Right now, remember. Think back of all of His goodness to you and to all of His people. He will not forsake you now, whatever you're facing. If the enemy looks as big as Assyria, he will not forsake you, right? He is more than able to take care of those who entrust themselves to him. What kind of faith is it that says, you know, I trust God for my eternity, but I can't trust him right now? That kind of faith is no faith at all. And it's the times when we're in great distress and when the enemy seems great and when, the, when all around us is, is difficulty and we're, in, we're just perplexed that we are tested. That the reality of our faith, our, our trust in God is really put to the test. And we find out whether or not in fact we are believers Put your hope, your trust in the God of your salvation. Anything else that you look to is a hopeless idol. Now the last section of this oracle points not just to that ancient alliance between Syria and Israel, and to ancient Israel's dependency upon something other than God. But it really points to any worldly alliances and dependencies and hope that we put in anyone or anything else besides the one true and living God. Let me show you how this section really expands on this one historical context a little bit. The last section has two parts. The first part begins in chapter 17, verse 12. You take a look at that part of the text. It begins with the word, ah. Or if you, depending on your translation, it may be translated as woe or alas. And then you see the same word again. Well, it's right down in that section as well, but it's also in the next section that begins in chapter 18, verse number 1. Ah. The Lord has two pronouncements of woe or, or recognition here. And what connects these two parts is the scope, the scope of this prophecy that they share in common. Let me show that to you. Chapter, 12 verse, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 12. 17, 12. Ah, the thunder of what? Many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of what? Nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar. So you can see we've gone from just a couple of, 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 of nations here and the immediate focus on Syria, now to talking about nations in general. And then in chapter 18, you kind of have the same thing going on. The Lord is addressing verse 3, chapter 18, and verse number three, who's the Lord addressing here? All you inhabitants of the world. There's a global kind of view here now. The, the view is kind of going from here, from the immediate context to being expanded to, to have applicability to a great uh, number of nations and situations. Ah, all you inhabitants of the world, verse 3, you who dwell on the earth. So we've moved now to a kind of, of a global application of this to any worldly coalition that is sent, set against 
the Lord and against His anointed. And so beginning in verse 12 now, this last section, chapter 17, verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Just mighty, just picture all of these nations gathered together and the cacophony of their armies is just thunderous. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of mighty waters, but He will rebuke them, and they will what? Flee away. Just as surely as He parted the Red Sea and opened the Jordan River, the waters of these nations coming in to to drown His people will be pushed back. They will be delivered. And of course, the immediate historical context in its broader scope, as we just begin to broaden out from a focus on Syria to what's happening around them, the immediate historical context may be a reference to the Assyrian armies coming in upon God's people like a flood. In fact, earlier in this book, The Assyrian armies were likened to uh, a flood of a great river. And now in verse 13, the middle of the verse, he sort of changes up the metaphor, but he's still going in the same direction, saying that the nations, these nations will be, verse 13, in the middle of the verse, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. You've seen pictures of people um, hand-threshing, uh, and they throw the, the, the kernels of grain up, and the kernels fall, and the chaff blows away. The Lord says, the people, the nations that are arrayed against His people will come to nothing. They'll be blown away like so much chaff in the wind. Verse 14, at evening time, behold, look, what do you see? Terror! But now before morning, they are no more. All of these nations gather together to do their worst, and and everybody's terrified. And in the morning, the Lord has made Himself known. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. And again, once, once again, in the, in the sort of immediate future, I mean, it would happen almost just like this. The Assyrian armies would be gathered surrounding Jerusalem. They besieged that city. The people inside were looking out of their walls at these, this vast army in terror. And they went to bed at night just that way. And when they got up in the morning, what had happened but that the angel of the Lord had slain 185,000 of the army and the army was scattered and eventually went back home. <laughs> what, you know, I mean, this is, this is literally you know, being played out kind of in their immediate future. And of course, the message is to Israel, Assyria is not where you should put your trust. And you might think, well, you know, I mean, put yourself in the place of these people. They're dealing, they're in the middle of two huge world powers. And if God doesn't want them to trust in Assyria, then maybe you look the other direction, right? And who's in the other direction? North, northeast, you've got Syria, and southwest, you've got Egypt. And so they're thinking, well, maybe Egypt is the way to go, right? And that's where chapter 18 comes in. And this really will bleed on into chapter. 19 that we'll look at later as well, but the Lord deals with Egypt or warns them about Egypt. And He describes that land in two ways for for chapter 18 now. Let's quickly go through this. Chapter 18, verse 1. He describes it as a land of whirring wings, whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Cush being southern Egypt, also known as uh, Ethiopia, or Nubia, really what we would consider today part of Egypt. 
And there was, you know, this was a land of insects, vast swarms of winged creatures whose the drone of their wings in a great summer plague would be like this great army just coming up out of Egypt. He says, this is a a land of whirring wings. And verse uh, 2, he also describes them as a land which sends messengers by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. And of course, that's exactly what happened. In the face of the Assyrian threat, Egypt sent emissaries to the various um, other nations around them to try to get them to join in uh, a, a coalition with them. And uh, verse 2, the middle of the verse, the Lord says, Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth. And the Ethiopians were notoriously tall, and the Egyptians notoriously shaved clean. Go to a people tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, perhaps a reference to the Nile or its delta. And it's, so in verse 2, it's as if the Lord is sending messengers or calling His people to send messengers back to Egypt with God's response, with Israel's response. Verse 3, All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, so again, the application now is not just to that near context of what's going on with Egypt, but to all peoples, Pay attention when a signal is raised on the mountains. Look, when a trumpet is blown here, for thus says the Lord, for the Lord said to me, I will quietly look down or look from my dwelling like a clear heat in sunshine and like a cloud of dew in the heat of the harvest. Here's God's answer to this, you know, this Assyrian threat, and now the Egyptians are coming up and saying, join us, and Assyria says, no, pay homage to us, and the nations of north of them are coming and, and trying to conquer Israel and Judah. Israel's trying to conquer Judah, and what's the answer to all of this? The Lord's going to give His answer, but here's how the Lord's described. Look, notice two things in verse 4. The Lord is described as looking quietly from His heaven, Right? I love that. I mean, here's the whole world in absolute turmoil and chaos, and everybody's, uh, there are all of these conspiracies, and who's against who, and who's with who, and let's, let's we just got to do what we got to do to survive, and how are we going to make it, and there's sheer terror, and there are all of these armies marching down, and the whirring of, of, of uh, swarms of armies, and, and the Lord is quietly in His heaven, looking down, sovereign over all of it, Right? That's the picture that is always given to us in the Scripture. God is not reacting. God is acting. He is not wanting nor wasting. He rulest in might, as we see. And notice, secondly, that God actually appears, and this is the best I can make from this verse, okay? This is a hard verse to figure out, but it seems like that God is, is appearing to bring about this harvest using the metaphor, the, the agricultural metaphor again, right? He's bringing the sun and the heat and the dew and the rain in the harvest time. It's like God's about to give this great kingdom, this, this pagan people, He's about to give them this great harvest. But, verse 5, here's what happens. Before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, right? Everything's, everything's ripening. It's about to be harvest time. These nations feel like they're on the cusp of really getting the prize that they want. Then what does God do? Verse 5. What does He do? He cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches He lops off and clears them away. Just when the nations think that they're about to achieve their objective and reap their harvest, verse 6, they shall all of them, that is, all of the nations gathered against Him, they shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. 
and the birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. And I think this is a reminder that you know we cannot judge God's providence by what we see in the immediate, in the here and now. Doing so much with impunity. Where are you? As the old song says, the old poem, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. God's people are called to persevere in faith and wait until His promises come to their end. Because in the short term, it looks like He's working to promote the enemy sometimes in His providence, the way His providence runs, right? Would we not all say that that, we've seen that, we've been grieved by that? But in the end, the Lord steps in. And as if to glorify Himself, He manifests Himself when things are darkest. (laughs) Reminds me of Revelation chapter 20, where the Bible says that after being bound for a great period of time from being able to deceive the nations, that Satan will be let loose for a little while or a little season. And that he will gather the nations together against Christ's church as if to crush her. But that the Lord in that moment will manifest himself and will deliver his people. Just as surely as he delivered the people of Israel in an impossible situation from Pharaoh's army that was breathing down their necks. And it just magnifies God. Who else could get them out of that? And God parts the sea, and they walk across. So the point is, don't judge things before their time. Right? How many of us have heard, hey, you Christians, you're on the wrong side of history. Well, the truth is, people who say that just don't have a big enough view of history. And here, verse 7, is the end. At that time, when God steps in and manifests Himself in the presence of all the nations, when He shows His mighty arm, when He finally pulls back the curtain and and they see the King upon His throne, then in that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared far and near, a nation mighty and conquering whose lands the rivers divide. They will bring tribute to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. And in the end, even the mighty Ethiopians, the Egyptians, they pay homage to the King of kings and Lord of lords. So God through Isaiah tells his people, don't link up with Assyria. Don't pander to Assyria. Don't put your hope in Egypt. And you know the big point for all of us should be clear at this stage that we should guard our hearts regarding where we put our hope, where we really put our trust, what we're really looking to for our ultimate help and satisfaction. And today, it may be that some of God's people here are in distress in a time that feels like where Israel was at that time. And 
in this great distress, you're going to be put to the test. Your faith is going to be put to the test. Who will you look to? Who are you going to look to right now in this time of testing? You're going to look to a worldly hope? To an ungodly alliance? You're going to look to those who are no gods? You're going to make a god out of something or someone who is not God? Put your all your hope and all your uh, dependence upon that thing? You're going to fall back on pragmatism? Just judge by what you see in the immediate? Or are you going to put your trust in the one true and living God who is a loving Father intent on purifying, sanctifying His children through through good, pleasant means and through difficulties. But He's got a good heart for you. He wants you to see that He's trustworthy. He's going to need to strip away other things out of your life. He's going to need to show you futility sometimes in order to get you to look to Him. Brethren, examine your hearts. Let us all examine our hearts today. Who are we really looking to? Who is really big in our sight? Who do we have eyes for more than anybody else? What is biggest and most significant in your view? God or something else? All other hopes are vain. That's the message. So look to and trust in the Lord God alone. 